0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: It's the middle of August, the time when summer is coming to an end and parents around the country are now faced with a daunting decision. Whether or not to send their kids back to school. And since I've been talking about this so much, people have been asking me, what are we going to do? Well, as a father of three teen and preteen girls, ages 11, 13, and 15, this has been a constant source of discussion in our household. And I got to tell you, it hasn't been easy. My girls want to go back to school, and they are placing enormous pressure on us parents to make it so. I get where they're coming from. They have been cooped up for months, going stir-crazy. They miss their friends and the social structure and the immersion in humanity that kids need and crave at this age. Many schools around the country have already made the decision for the students. At least 63 of the 101 largest school districts are going to start their year with virtual learning. Others have decided to go in person, though many with online options. My own kid's school left the choice up to each family. And while this is difficult, I am also grateful that we have options. I know there are families all over the country that are struggling right now. Access to childcare, access to technology, even food, all of which can make a physical return to school a necessity, not really a choice. So we recognize that we've had this privilege and this luxury to make a decision, but it was still challenging. We started doing our homework, looking at the data, the existing criteria. Our goal? To come up with the best science-based choice for us. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. So where do we start when we're making this decision about going back to school if we're offered one? Well, I wanted to know the safety precautions my kid's school was putting in place, so I went there to see what was being done. Did you have to make any large uh, changes to the ventilation yeah. systems? Yeah, like we've that? worked through all of our ventilation in all of our buildings, new filtering, and along with uh, you know going through restrooms and touchless, you know, faucets, and all those different kinds of things are all all kind of underway also. What I found is that their safety measures are very much in line with recommendations from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And in some cases, my kid's school had gone even beyond those recommendations. For example, there will be a mask mandate in my kid's school. And keep in mind, we're in Georgia, where there is no statewide mask mandate. The school will have plenty of hand hygiene stations, and they do have physical distancing plans— They're going to frequently disinfect surfaces and even do outdoor classes when possible. Students will eat lunch in their classroom, and there won't be any mass gatherings or assemblies, I was told. All in all, it seemed that physical distancing was going to be the toughest challenge. My kid's school was trying to make creative use of space in libraries, gymnasiums, and cafeterias to try to obtain the necessary square footage to try and address this problem. I got the sense it had been a Herculean effort— for the last several months, and I also realized that despite all their planning, none of it was going to work unless the students themselves were extremely diligent about following all these practices on buses, in hallways, in classrooms. You not only need to offer these basic public health practices and make them a practicality and a reality, they've also got to feel like they are the norm. Our school also took the extra step of testing all the students and faculty and staff this past week, and the results were made available within 96 hours. I can tell you my girls all tested negative, and that gives us some reassurance for those kids who do choose to attend school. Keep in mind, students who test positive will be asked to isolate at home. But I want to say a quick word about this. I fully realize this sort of what we call assurance testing is sadly still not nearly available enough in this country. And it is also not a perfect tool. Some tests have been known to give a considerable amount of false negatives, depending on the type of test you take and how early you take it. And while someone may test negative today, there is no guarantee they won't test positive for the virus tomorrow. That being said, I don't know what else our school could possibly do. But we still had to look at the science. Much of the discussion of returning to school obviously revolves around the risk to the health of our children. What we know so far is that most children that have COVID-19 develop mild or moderate symptoms, about 90 percent, and that by the first week of August, 90 children in the United States had died. That's a very small percentage of the overall deaths. We have heard stories of something known as MISC, that's the multi-system inflammatory syndrome, but still, it's rare. So yes, it is true that children are far less likely to get sick from COVID-19 as compared to adults. But they are by no means immune either. They can become infected, and they can spread it quickly. A widely cited study out of South Korea showed that children, aged 10 to 19, actually spread the virus just as much as adults. Interestingly, in that same study, it found that children under 10 did not account for a significant amount of viral spread. I got to tell you, this was really surprising to me because there have been other studies that have found that younger children actually carry higher amounts of the virus in their nose as compared to adults. In fact, I think any parent will tell you how easily little kids spread viruses in their own homes. When our kids were very young, for example, a single cold in any of them meant the whole family was going to get it soon. So as part of my homework, I decided to go back and look closer at that South Korean study and I noticed a very important detail. Overall, that study included fewer than 30 people younger than the age of 10. In fact, of the nearly 60,000 contacts that were traced in the study, only 237 of them were from children under the age of 10. So what does that mean? It means young children simply weren't coming into contact with as many people. And that means when we think of the low rate of spread among young kids so far, it might not be because they're less likely to transmit the virus, but because they've had contact with fewer people. Just think about it. Schools shut down around mid-March, so kids, especially little ones, have been mostly at home. But now as our kids become increasingly mobile, they are going to become part of a large national experiment. And there's little doubt that the infection rates will rise. We have already seen that the number of children infected increased by 90%, just over the last four weeks, to more than 380,000 cases. That's according to analysis by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And that's with most schools around the country not even in session yet. It's also important to remember, when we talk about viral spread, that a school is a community made up of more than just young people. We do have to think about the concerns and the health of teachers, faculty, staff, drivers, food service, you name it, According to one recent analysis, nearly a quarter of the teachers and staff working in the United States school system are considered at high risk of serious illness from COVID-19, either because of their age or pre-existing conditions. There was a story that really struck me over the summer, stories of worried teachers around the country who said that they sat down and started writing out their wills in anticipation of returning to school. Can you imagine that? So worried are they about being in schools and possibly dying, that they spent the summer writing out a will. We cannot take those risks lightly. Now, in addition to looking at my kid's school and evaluating the overall viral spread, I wanted to take a closer look at what was happening with the virus in our own community. This is a really important point, and I encourage you to do the same for your community. In my home state of Georgia and in our county, we have not seen the number of new cases decreasing over a two-week period. Remember, that was one of the key criteria from the White House Coronavirus Task Force to enter the phase of school reopening. And if you look at testing in Georgia, positivity rates are still around 11%. That means we are still not doing enough testing. And having adequate testing was another criteria put out by the Coronavirus Task Force. The Surgeon General said he would like to see positivity rates at less than 10% in communities before schools consider reopening. So that's another number you should find out about your own community. In Georgia, we're close, around 11%. But look at New York. The positivity rate there is under 1%. That's because they're testing a lot more, and they have a downward trajectory of cases. Finally, I think we've got to look at what has already happened in schools that have opened. These are clues we must pay attention to. There was a high school in Woodstock, Georgia, that is temporarily closed after at least 14 positive COVID-19 cases in the first week. Hundreds are already under quarantine in the county. Another school in Dallas, Georgia, opened and then immediately closed its doors after six students and three faculty became infected. That school's plan is to reopen after disinfecting, though it is not clear how much of a difference that will make as there is no mask requirement. And a single sneeze or a cough without a mask could once again contaminate a classroom. I know it's a lot to consider. But in my family's mind, the evidence is clear. After considering all the objective criteria and assessing the situation in our own community, we made the decision to keep our girls out of school, at least for the time being. It's not easy, but we believe this choice best respects the science, decreases the risk of further spread, and follows the task force criteria. As a compromise, we did allow our children to have a physically distance orientation meeting with their new teachers so they could at least meet them in person before starting to interact with them on a screen. Having the conversation with my kids was not easy, but they understand the science, and they understand that we are in the middle of a pandemic. It is worth reminding people that when we pulled kids out of school, there were fewer than 5,000 people infected in this country and fewer than 100 deaths. At the time we were thinking about putting kids back in school, there are more than 5 million infections, and more than 160,000 people have died. We were in far better position at the time we made the decision kids needed to come out of school. You have to ask yourself, how does it make sense that we now want to return them to school at a time when the situation is so much worse? We're going to keep reassessing this as a family and acknowledge that every part of this is hard, Some families may look at the same data and arrive at a different conclusion. And of course, all of this may lead to making decisions that are unpopular with the most important people in our lives. But in the age of COVID-19, it seems we are all forced to become amateur epidemiologists while also being the best parents we can be. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.